Today, we're talking to Jenny Segal on purpose, hybrid working, her new book, and of course, what value for money means to her. Welcome to the 15th episode of VFM Pensions, and I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host, the one and only Nico Aspinall. Nico, I can't believe we've done 15 episodes. I know, it's amazing. And it's actually it? more than that with the specials, isn't it? Well, and when we have to repeat ourselves, Darren. So, yeah. <laughs> of course, I'm absolutely delighted to be sat next to you, Darren Philp. Uh, and today, we are overjoyed to be welcoming uh, Jenny Segal. Welcome. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Brilliant that you could join us. And um, Jenny, you've had a variety of roles in the pensions industry. You're a pensions actuary, um, investment distribution expert, and you are an asset management leader. And you now have a portfolio portfolio career, including um, CEO at Nesta. And you've been consulting on how to motivate people and work in environments. That's a pretty impressive CV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so welcome, welcome. Um, so, uh, yeah, as ever, we start these podcasts with the news. Uh, Jenny, what have you brought in for us? Yeah, so thank you. Well, I guess rather topically, given my area of interest on purpose and hybrid working, is the announcement from JP Morgan that they are warning work from home uh, is coming to an end. And they're ordering, I think was the headline I saw, they're ordering their seniors to come to the office five days a week. Right. So really signalling... I think a move that we've been hearing hints at from the large American banks that they want an end to this working from home nonsense. Yeah. And we need to be back in the office to get our jobs done well. And is that is that driven by the American banks or is that a trend we're seeing across the piece or is it too early to say? I think there's definitely been pressure from the large American banks. But interestingly, when I was doing the research for the book, I interviewed a lot of people for it. And what I observed was this kind of complete split. So you've got the situation where you've got the employers wanting the employees to be in the office for more hours mm. than the employees want to be in. And there are some good reasons for that, which are things like collegiality and mentorship and innovation yep. and all those, all those good things. But equally, there are probably some not so great underlying factors things like presenteeism presenteeism exactly lack of trust micromanagement and also maybe some ego and status people liking to Mm. wander around their empires and see all their see all their troops yeah i've I've always taken a view on this and i'm sure we'll cover this in a lot more but um there's no point in being in the office just sitting um on a zoom call other platforms are available um, all day um if if your team isn't there and um you know if you're not getting that um sort of keeping in touch type environment. Or the interaction. The interaction, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so did, did JPM say why? They said that they, they that, well, I think, I think very sensibly that leaders play a critical role mm. in, in setting the tone and people need to have a reason to come into the office and they need to be there to oversee things. So there's, there's partly an element of, of, yeah, leading by example. And so, so there's some, I think there's some, some very good 
things at the heart of it, mm-hmm. but equally there's probably some other things around the edge as well. And, and my conclusion, not that I wish to spoil the spoil the book <laughs> for all those avid, desperate readers out there who can't wait to read it, is the, the, the punchline is that it's kind of balance and it's purpose and understanding mm. your why, understanding why you want people to be in the office. And to your point, Darren, if you're going to come into the office, don't scroll your way in, in a room and mm. sit on Zoom calls. You know, do do the good stuff. Do the do the, the stuff that's that, 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 that thrives in the office environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my observation is that people don't necessarily know what that is. You know, the culture yeah. kind of lost it. Um, and we'll come on to your book in a, in a second. I haven't quite finished it, but I'm most of the way through. Uh, so I believe I can talk intelligently about oh, what you're you. saying. I, I, I do hate your one-upmanship. <laughs> <laughs> your subtle digs. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so I, I, I think that discerning what you're actually in for is the critical piece um, and I've certainly been in office cultures where they just sit in rows in silence um, I remember turning up at I think I should say Towers Watson and you know I was on the phone in the office and it was, it was I was very loud in the office space because nobody else was on the phone and these yeah. were consultants and I just right, I went to my team and said, I'm really sorry that you're not on the phone, you know. Because <laughs> like, there's, a, there's a noise thing, isn't there? So if, the, if it's too noisy, you can't get work done. If it's not noisy enough, then people feel really, really awkward. And yeah, it was a bit of a library in uh, 2012. Mm. So yeah, good office culture, bad office culture. We'll definitely come on to that. Uh, Darren, what have you got for us? Yeah, so um, I've, I've got a piece that was covered, I think, across the, 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 the pensions um, news industry um, yesterday, so the day before we were recording, about um, Parliament calling for greater regulatory accountability. MPs are saying that lack of democratic oversight holds back productivity in report. And this report um, was from the Regulatory Reform Group, which is mm-hmm. a, a bunch of MPs. Um, and basically the report was arguing that, um, you know, the, the lack of oversight of regulators is holding back economic growth and recommended the formation of a new cross-parliamentary committee to oversee regulatory performance. So, you know, why did I raise this? Well, you know, from my experience, yeah, and I spent 13 years in government, regulators don't just create themselves. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, regulators um, come to being through, you know, having you know proposals from the government, or you know, within manifestos or white papers or wh- wherever the idea actually comes from. But then it's up to Parliament um, to set the strategic direct objectives of yeah. said regulators, and to create the the governance and the framework for regulatory accountability. So you know, having um, Parliament um, saying that. Um, there's a lack of democratic oversight and accountability of regulators that they've created the framework for, right. yeah, and the strategic objective just feels really odd to me, mm-hmm. you know, um, and and I think that, you know, what it shows for me, and the, the, one of the lessons I take from this is that there's lots of details when it comes into legislation, and I think sometimes we, we focus on big ticket items within bills and within legislation, and actually the scrutiny, the, the, the detail of this stuff is really important, mm. because the, the people who wrote this report were probably involved in the creation of some of these bodies. So, you know, I think there's, there's, there's something in there that sort of seriously needs looking at from a legislative perspective. 
I was casting my mind back, Nico, to the first time we ran one of these, and you had three pieces of news, news items. I'm not going to try right. and keep. Um, I'm not going to sort of embrace you on that. But, but I want to sort of raise some breaking news, um, which has just come through just before we um, started recording, which is the IFS has um, has called for a major review of pension provision. So this is the Institute for Fiscal Studies, um, and they've published a report. Um, and you know, looking at things like um, the risks arising for future generation of pensioners, um, and details and sets out plans for a pensions review. So it might not be the pensions commission that we keep coming right. back to, um, but I think um, you know we're at a stage now within our, the development of our pension system that you know we do need to take that step back and just think about yeah. how all this stuff fits together because there has been so much change. Um, I suppose the key thing will be, you know, how long will it take, how will it be done, and what will come out of it. Um, but I think, you know, given the credibility of the Institute for Fiscal Studies as an organisation, you know, it can only be a good thing that they're grasping the nettle and, and, and looking at this. Yeah, I guess, I mean, so to sort of comment on both of them, right, so, uh, you know, the world is complex and the lens that you come at the world from um, very much shapes what you see as being the problems. And so I would worry if a... You know, one lens commission could possibly solve pensions problems. Yeah, well, it can't. Um, so it's about consensus. We could keep coming back to consensus. Well, well we indeed. Keep coming back from and therefore, it's potentially about busy work for the IFS to create a report that sits on the shelf that consumes lots and lots of people um, and probably lots of Excel spreadsheets um, without having any political impact because essentially it will come out of, the, out of the sun for everybody else who worries about pensions because of sufficiency or because of you know, uh, uh, quality of life uh, uh, in uh, longer, longer life. So um, yeah, good luck, guys. Um, that will be that will be fun. Um, I'm sure we'll, we will talk about it. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, if we're going in five years' time or whatever long it takes uh, to, to to come out. Um, but yeah, so uh, you know, as evidence into our uh, hoped for pensions commission, fantastic. Um, as the only piece of evidence in a, a, a prosecution, I would be very very worried. And just on the regulatory accountability, you know, is there a culture of bureaucratizing complexity? Uh, that you believe you can sort of set up this silo. Your book talks about silos, Jenny, uh, and almost just you kind of set it off in motion and off it goes. And then again, you come up with this sort of objective or this other success measure, which wasn't set up originally. And that is the kind of gripe, isn't it? That, that Parliament goes like, oh, actually, we set up this silo wrong. Yeah. And now it is accountable for what we set it up, but we believe accountability should look like this, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and, and it's bound to happen in a way because, you know, political priorities and regulatory priorities change. Yeah. These things can't be static. Um, so it might just be the headline, it might just be how it was presented. Uh -huh. but, um, but yeah, I just thought it was slightly ironic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they, if anyone's got the opportunity to do anything about it, it yeah. is Parliament and it is the government. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I, I brought in um, the uh, Hunt speech, so Jeremy Hunt, our Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, talking about essentially uh, a, a, a topic of long uh, knowledge, I guess, to this podcast, uh, which is the desire to stick uh, illiquid, unlisted assets into particularly DC pension schemes. Um, and uh, I wasn't necessarily going to talk about the, the speech itself, but uh, I was amazed to see the Washington Post uh, uh, pick up and discuss this. Um, and I just wanted to read out one of the final, one of the sentences from the, the, the final paragraph. The lesson with unlisted and or uh, illiquid assets is not whether they will become unstuck, but when and how badly. Right. 
So um, I think a very interesting uh, transatlantic comment here. Uh, you know, the sort of sense that um, you can put the Australian system onto a pedestal and ask why we're not more Australian in our asset allocation. Um, but there are consequences to pushing and potentially pushing in the way that it seems like uh, the chancellor is the chancellor is thinking about. Mm. So uh, watch this space. Obviously, in the the latest consultation, but one there was a discussion about um, requiring asset allocation disclosures, which would have a, a segment in the DC pie saying yeah. listed uh, illiquid assets. Um, you know, if that says zero, does anybody care or notice? Except for people who imagine if that said five, it would all be UK. What is the question that I have? Yeah. Um, so more to come, I suspect. And and, and Jenny, you've, you've you've been sort of active in the pension space, and we'll come on to how you got into pensions in a minute. Um, but and, and in the investment space as well. What's um what's your views on the, you know, um the the, the drive to get pension schemes invested in illiquid assets? Yeah, I was sort of sighing slightly, Nico, <laughs> when you were talking about um about the the, sort of like the health warnings on this. Um, I I my, I think my my overall overarching theme is that we've gone from DB and I, I remember when Maxwell fell off his boat and that was mm. kind of the end of DB schemes really I, for me that was the that was the death knell and I spent the early part of my career closing down DB schemes and opening yeah. up DC schemes and and the the employers using it not as an opportunity so much to to reduce the volatility of their pension contributions but to reduce them yeah, yeah. so you'd see 20% contributions going down to 5% yeah. contributions yeah. and you didn't yeah. need to be an actuary yeah, to work out just, it wasn't just a risk play was it no no no, 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 no reduction in benefits yeah. as well yeah. Yeah. yeah and you didn't need to be an actuary to work out that if you go from 20 to 5% contributions you're going to you know all things being equal get a quarter of the quarter of the pension and at the same time as that you had this this shift which has just been ongoing and ongoing and ongoing of remo- of moving the risk investment risk from the trustees from the sponsoring employer onto the individual and requiring people to become CIOs of their own mm-hmm. their own pension funds which is ridiculous they yeah. people you know people don't want to do it and they're not equipped to do it and we've made it also complicated with the best will in the world we've made it really it's just too complicated for people to know to know how to do it and when you do get the official advice, it's so full of these caveats that right. it scares yeah, yeah. people. Yeah. And what do the caveats actually do? And I'm sort of reminded of the, I guess, the kind of holder on your coffee cup when you go to certain coffee outlets, the beverage you're about to consume is extremely hot. As if the coffee purveyor could care less whether you burn your tongue yeah, or drop yeah. it over yourself and burn yourself. What they care about is they're not getting sued. Mm, yeah. And there's, it's that kind, of, that kind of cynicism. So, and I, I think that we, that it's, it's, yeah, it's really important to, we've ended up in a place where we've got this race for the bottom on costs, which means it's, a, it's not, frankly, it's not commercial for asset management firms to invest in creating good solutions because there's no money in it. And the real problem you've got with, you know, with in, if, how, I mean, I'm just, my mind's boggling. How do you introduce these unlisted yeah. assets into stuff which requires daily dealing and what yeah. you've got to get the costs really, really low? And, and, and yeah, and, and I think, you know, the, the, the bit that I would really like to see some focus and development on is actually what happens the other side. And the pots haven't been big enough really to encourage yeah. asset managers to innovate in a, in a really good way that, about what the drawdown looks like because yeah, yeah. actually that's the bit that worries me and I kind of know what I'm talking about sort mm. of with 35 odd years experience of doing this and I'm thinking that when I come to draw my pot maybe it's okay when you're 
whatever age you are when you start drawing it up, 10 years on, 20 yeah, years on. Yeah. If I look at my parents who, are, you know, they've fortunately got DB schemes, but they're in their 80s and 90s. And they, how can you expect people to be on top mm. of these things? It, it's just not realistic. Yeah. So I think those are my, I'm not sure if I answered your question there, but I think that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's sort of my overall thoughts about you, how you, we you should be trying to get to yeah. 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 So, so you, you know, you, you, you talked about your experience fitting pensions, but let's let's move you before that now. Yeah. So yeah. how did you get into pensions? Yes, um, I have to say by accident, obviously, because yeah. that's, what, that's what we all say. I wasn't intending to be and uh, pensions actually, I was, I was going to be a doctor. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm not quite sure how I'm here. But I was brought up with this very strong professional work ethic, which actually came not just from my mother, but from my grandmother, who was living in a council flat in the East End of London with a single mother with five children. And she became a single mother because she basically she kicked her husband out because he was, he was, he, he gambled and he was just a, a you know, just not, generally quite problematic yeah. and she was a machinist and in the days it's unbelievable now with this, all this sort of talk of even though we're not quite there with the quality of pay in fact we're a long way off it but she used to get paid per hat that she made mm. and the rate per hat was lower if you're a woman than if you're a man wow that's crazy yeah, yeah it's unbelievable now but she she did that and she she ensured that all her five kids they all went to grammar school because they were they were bright but whereas all my mum's friends all had to leave school at 15 to go and earn money, she had the foresight because she'd have to bring five kids up on this machinist wage to say, no, you can stay on, you've got to go to university. And it's really important to get professional qualification behind you. So you've, not just a career, but a professional qualification. And she drummed that into my mum, who was a dentist, and that was very unusual for her. She qualified in 1960. Right. Um, it was really unusual. Um, that was that was drummed into me and my sister. My sister's a doctor, and so I was always going to be a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant kind of a thing. Yeah. And I'd never really heard of being an actuary, but I was good at maths, and I decided to rebel and not do medicine at university <laughs> and did a maths degree. And then I guess being an actuary sort of popped its head up, and I worked yeah. for a pensions consultancy one summer holiday and thought, I don't really know what actuaries do, but... I quite like the people mm. and they offered me a job and I went back there and I happened to get shoved in a pensions team rather than the insurance <laughs> team and I guess the rest is history. It's history, yeah. Mm. So you're in good company with Nico then. Indeed, It's the yes. Actuarial Alliance. The Actuary Club. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. The Brethren. Yes. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, but you moved out of sort of pensions actuarial into investment. Was that sort of opportunity or excitement or yeah. push or shove? Or? It was... I've always been I've always been quite driven by purpose actually, mm -hmm. by by meaning and tr you know, trying to find something that's 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 sort of worthwhile and, and and important. And I got a little bit, I've alluded to it already. I got a little bit disillusioned with the whole shutting down of DB schemes, yeah. and I just didn't yeah. think that was the right way to do it. And yeah. I yeah. I sort of lacked the means and the influence to actually try and make a difference. So I kind of took a sidestep, and it was a bit of a blind leap of faith working for an investment firm it happened it was bgi yeah. at the time they were looking for technical people to do their their client stuff and there weren't that many technical people out there nobody had the cfa then so they were sh they were yeah. shopping for actuaries and there weren't many actuaries who were as outgoing as i was so it was a kind of an easy an easy sale for me to to make to make the shift across yeah 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 and so that's uh, kind of thinking about sort of almost early days of solutions. Is that is that the kind of space? Or? Yeah, it it was actually. It was very early days of LDI. Right. Yeah. Sort of structuring, yeah. structuring 
fixed income index yeah. index portfolios to be able to deliver yeah. to, 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 to be able to deliver this, the, 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 the coupon stream that the mm. pension funds want it's a very early days yeah yeah gosh um, and then you've had a variety of different kind of investment management roles so yeah. uh, kind of maybe moving to higher up the echelons of uh, uh, leadership and then also sort of distribution more purely distribution is that yes right? I think I realized again probably quite early on that whilst I could do the technical stuff it wasn't really what interested me I was much yeah. more interested in the communication side and the people the people side of things and and over the years I've become much more focused on trying to work out what purposes and the realization that purpose isn't actually for me and actually as I've discovered more generally it's not actually about money right I'm sorry I should probably shouldn't say that on a VFM podcast no, 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 it's no, not no. about I think, it, I think it's, it's not right, yeah. it's yeah. not about money it's, it's not about, just about money it's yeah. about money you know, it's really important to have enough money and until yeah. you've got enough money it's absolutely about money because you, we all need our basic needs it's Maslow we all need our basic need, needs met but beyond that it's about other things that are higher up on Maslow's pyramid and when I for the first book when I interviewed people for that and asked them what motivated them the number one big thing was team right mm, yeah. um, really really interesting and you know being a part of something which again comes back mm. to the whole do we want to be in the office or not do we want yeah. to be part of something and sometimes we don't actually recognize what makes us happy yeah and um, so yeah so so very much thinking about thinking about what what's what's purposeful and I had a couple of things happen I think to me that made me that it sort of accelerated the the relatively slow shift I, I started which I, I started two years ago to make the shift and I've now really started it again in in force and and um, one of them was a really bad health thing in 2015 where I was very fortunate enough but also unlucky enough to be diagnosed with extremely aggressive breast cancer mm, yeah. and I was you know unlucky to get it obviously but extremely fortunate because it was incredibly early, and it was right. a yeah. it was a combination of the, the fates were smiling on me that day. I happened to have an annual health check right. yeah. at the time when I happened to have a cyst, which right. was benign, and I happened to you know I get I went to I had private health cover. At the end of the week, they they saw me and they said actually it's all looks fine, but we'll just do a right. a belt and braces yeah. check on you. And in that they found out that not only did I have a cyst, but I had this tiny, tiny, super aggressive lump that was buried so deep in me that it would have been impossible to find until it had yeah. grown to a size wow. when it would have been too late. Yeah. So that was, you know, the, as I said, the effects were definitely smiling on me. And 2015 was not fun because I ended up having 10 rounds of chemo just mm. because it was so aggressive. And, and then it turned out that I've got a BRCA mutation, which then meant I had to have vast swathes of my body removed and right. replaced and all the rest of it. But I'm bionic now, so that's good. <laughs> but what it did, and so the, rec the physical recovery took about a year. The mental recovery, I'm still working through. Mm. And you know, it hit me in all sorts of different ways, depression, anxiety, but a real focus on purpose and what am I doing with my life right, and at yeah. the time I was, I've got I've got three lovely children and my youngest son was about four mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. you sort of look at him I was tuck, I remember tucking him in at night and thinking you know he may not have a mother you know that's yeah, you, you yeah, didn't yeah, know yeah, what yeah. the outcome was going to be mm -hmm. at that stage and when it became apparent that I remember my oncologist who was a fantastic lady and her, she's saying to me you know uh, I can cure you right and they don't use 
the c word yeah, in yeah. cancer they just don't yeah but they but this particular brand i had i was and, and i that used to be a mantra that i used to tell myself every night she can cure me she can cure me mm. and that really helped me to get through the short term and then yeah, over time yeah. it kind of fades and you're then you're more thinking you're more looking forwards than looking back and you think well actually you know you don't you don't have forever mm. and I was in, we all think we're immortal I think right. until that first yeah. thing happens yeah. Yeah. we sort of particularly as actually sort of know the death thing <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and there was a, that painful mortality exam that we had to yeah. sit yeah. but but it's it's a thing that doesn't really happen to us yeah. and to suddenly at that stage when I had three young kids mm. to have that forced on me and it makes you think what do I want to do when I grow up yeah. 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 and actually if I'm not grown up now there's actually a good chance I might never grow up yeah in that I may not have the time to grow up, so I better think about it. And I, so I, I spent a, a while, you know, probably in a few years thinking about it. And I, and it's always, and I guess I say, it's always been about purpose, about sort of, sort of making a difference. And I'm going to uh, talk about this a lot. Possibly, I haven't talked spoken to, about this to you before, Nico. But I was very influenced as a young teenager by the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Okay, yeah. Massive Douglas Adams fan. What was and the magic number? Or the forty-two. Forty-two. 42 yeah. Of course, yeah. And there was this. There was <laughs> exactly. There was this bit in it which always resonated with me hugely as a 13-year-old, which was, do you remember the bit about the Golga Finchams? Ah, uh, well, who were this? I can test you. Yeah. Um, who were the these? Well, the hairdressers. They were the, exactly yeah. So and they were the uh, telephone kiosk sanitizers. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So for those of you who are less geeky than Nico and myself, they were. They, so they was they they were living on this overpopulated planet, and the, there were the, the the smart guys on the planet who yeah. basically decided to to promulgate this rumor that the planet was doomed. And they were going to going to all evacuate and, and populate a less doomed planet. So they yeah. built these three great arcs in space, and there yeah. was the A arc that was going to be filled with all the thinkers, yeah. and the and the C arc that had all the doers, yeah. and the B arc had all the middlemen. Yeah. Which, to, to Nico's point, was all the telephone sanitizers <laughs> yeah. and, the, and the hairdressers. And actually, if um, Monica and um, and Alex are listening to this, who are absolutely not on that B-Arc, <laughs> fantastic hairdressers, can't live without you. But the idea was that they sent the B-Arc off first because it was very good for morale, for people yes. to know they'd be landing on a planet where they were sure of good, a good haircut and where the phones were clean. <laughs> and, and, and of course, they, they just got rid of that useless third <laughs> yeah. of their population and then lived full and and full lives on their existing planet until they got wiped out by a disease contracted from yes. a dirty telephone. <laughs> it was the punchline. And, and I, I loved that, and I loved Douglas Adams' turn of phrase, but yes. I dedicated my first book to him. But um, what I t- took away from that as an impressionable 13-year-old was that I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, yeah. but I knew, sure as anything, I didn't want to be on that B-arc. Right. I wanted to make a difference, and I wanted mm. it to matter. And I think that's what I realised post-cancer was actually I want the next chapter to matter. So how can I do that in a way which is... I get, what's that called, that Japanese idea when you've got the Venn diagram? The the different, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The stuff that you're good at, the stuff that's your calling and the stuff you can get paid for, broadly yeah, speaking. Yeah, yeah. And so I started thinking about that. And actually, I, what, I, what I, I, I've observed through, through years of working at different firms, and I've worked at quite a few firms, and I've seen a lot of culture leadership culture I mean as opposed to yeah. although I've seen a fair yeah. amount of theatre as well but but I've seen a lot of different cultures and I've seen a lot of different leadership styles and management styles and I've seen some of it that's very good but I've seen a lot of it that's very bad yeah. and I've yeah. seen a lot of mental health issues that have been caused by very poor leadership and management and I thought well actually I can I'd like to address that 
and what I really like doing, I'm really interested in that in psychology, and I actually really like speaking, mm-hmm. as you may have noticed. I mean, you can't <laughs> shut me up once you get going. And, Thank goodness um, for that. That's <laughs> what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not in my So, how, and, I, and I, actually, I think this is something that we can really, we can really build on. So, mm. when, so that was the first thing, was the whole cancer thing. And then we had lockdown, and I didn't react well to lockdown. I'm not an extrovert. I'm a, but I'm a in, introvert who likes people, mm, right. and I found the shift to suddenly doing far too much travel and being on a plane to Dublin every other week, and as well as all the other stuff, you know, because of the Brexit fiasco. I was uh, and suddenly going to working at a desk at the end of my bed and not yeah, seeing anybody. Yeah, yeah. Horrific, yeah, really yeah. horrific. Yeah. And I mean, the good thing about it was I lost loads of weight because I was walk, walking thirty-five thousand steps a day because I was right. so miserable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I put it all back on again now. But that, but the, I, I got, it got me thinking, and that was when I, I wrote the first book. Right. And, I, and part of that was actually, I interviewed a load of people, mm. and again, that was driven by wanting to connect with people, and so I had an excuse to zoom people yeah. during yeah. during that first lockdown. Mm. Yeah, and that was very much about what motivates people and why. Uh, answering the question, why is it that when we're largely speaking we're in industry of fantastic people really intelligent really bright people yep. but if you ask people the question how many managers have you had in your working career how many of them have been have, how many of them have been outstandingly good yeah, and how many yeah. of them have been outstandingly bad right. it is really skewed yeah and so trying to get under the lid of why that is and what we can do to address it so that was sort of what the first book was about yeah, 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 yeah. and then the second book again was was really thinking about hybrid and what we can learn from it, because as a when I first I, when I first, my first job, I was the only woman in in the in in my team, right? And and that's changed a lot over the last thirty odd years. But it's still not you know not necessarily where it should be. I think it is in sales and distribution roles. It's better. Right. Yeah, yeah. But it's certainly not in the more technical roles. Still, we've still we've still got a way to go. And you and. I, I can remember one of my bosses telling me, he knew I had, at the time when I joined, I had a two-year-old, and him telling me, you need to be in the office by um, half past eight in the morning. Right. And I said, well, the first question, why? You know, yeah. nobody, I don't actually yeah. need to, yeah. to do my job, so I need to because of your ego, really, was, the, yeah. was sort yeah. of the underlying yeah. thing. And actually, I said, sorry, I can't. You know, the, the nursery doesn't open until eight. Yeah, it's yeah. physically impossible for me to get here without the Northern Line. So if the Northern Line works, I'll yeah. be in at 10 to nine. If it doesn't work, I might be in at quarter past nine. Yeah, but yeah. you're expecting me to hire a nanny? Yeah, yeah. Or someone to bridge that half hour gap? And, you know, those of us with these, you know, you, it's just impossible. You can't, yeah, and then you're yeah. still relying on all that stress. Mm. For what? Yeah. And, yeah. and I think hybrid was really great at showing people that it didn't matter. And I've always been a, a great proponent of that. I used to have someone who worked in my team who used to say to me, Jenny, is it all right if I, if I leave this afternoon because I've got to, I, it, to drop off Harry? I want to go and watch Harry play cricket. And I was just like, why, why, yeah, do, yeah. why are you even asking yeah, me that yeah, question? Yeah, yeah. And it's all about, I think, treating people like adults. And then they, and then they, people behave like adults. It's yeah. about trust, yeah. and I think that's what, what really what resonated with me with the hybrid working. As I think there's lots of amazing things. As I said, I found lockdown terrible, but there were a lot, there were lots of amazing things that came out of it. Lots of terrible things as well. Yeah. And I would, th- I think it's tragic that the world went through this 
hiatus and not just a hiatus because lots of people who died from covid but i mean i I think of it from the other the other end given my cancer experience i think about all the people who are going to die because their cancer diagnoses have been delayed and by and large they are younger Mm, than the people that died from covid so again it's another example of intergenerational unfairness where sort of the older generations prioritized over the younger generation who have sort of been messed up with gfc and all this all this other kind of stuff so i think it's really you know i think that that trying to get this hybrid stuff right and trying to get trying to arrive at at the best of both worlds is really really important for mental health and for sustainability yeah it's great so subscribe to that purpose Right, and, 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 and value for money. Yes, we've got to segue to value for money, or, or Henry will be up in arms. <laughs> so, um, you know, my, my so, I, so I, um, I, I'm lucky enough to have worked intimately with two uh, master trusts on the inside. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of them obviously launching the Towers Watson one. I remember we had a consultant, and we were talking to them about the, you know, well, how should we brand essentially, think about the purpose of this. And um, he had come out of the banking industry and said something along the lines of, oh, yeah, you should say it's not just about the money. And I had this sort of epiphany moment, realising that the financial services had no actual purpose. (laughs) The, 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 The sector really struggled to think outside of some numbers on a bank account balance or, you know, on a daily traded valuation of a unit. Uh, you know, the wider purpose of pensions, have we lost sight of that? And, and, you know, how can we correct that? How can we, because that must link to value for money, right? So if we can have well, if you a don't more understand purposeful... what you're trying to achieve, how yeah. can you assess value for money? Yeah. And yeah. that links yeah. to purpose. So. Yeah, we've got, and I like your point earlier about silos. We've got very, and we, we do, again, we do it all from a really good place of trying to do a really, really good job. And I think mm. it's largely because the people that are in our industries are quite technical. Yeah. And and sort of and so you sort of focus in on the detail and you do you do lose lose the big picture and and I, again I'm looking back to my mum and dad I can remember when uh, Ian from the Prue used to come round right. and it used to be very boring even for me but they'd all sit around the kitchen table <laughs> and they'd you know be writing these policies and yeah. stuff and they didn't get the best deal mm. but they trusted Ian yeah and and it was fine it was good you know it was good enough. Yeah. And I think we've, we're far too focused on, on optimising for the maximum amount of risk return yeah. rather than is it good enough? Yeah. And I, I think that there is this risk that we've made things so complicated that, there, that it's very difficult for people to get good advice. And it's just, you, know, you get reams and reams of stuff. And with your benefit yeah. statements, you get reams of stuff. And it's, it might be well written, but it's too, it's too long and it's too yeah. much. And you yeah. don't know what's important. Then what people tend to do is they go and ask their mates because yeah, yeah, they want yeah. to get the advice from somebody they trust, and that's probably really suboptimal. Just yeah. tell me what you did, which box should I tick? Yeah, I just want to get it done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's not that's not good value for money. Yeah, yeah. we've we we need to, I think, think much more about how we provide good, accessible advice that doesn't require all these disclaimers and the person mm. saying I can't advise you yeah. you have to it's your decision yeah. again I'm, you might I'm not if, if you burn yourself on this coffee it's your fault it's not yeah, my yeah, fault yeah, yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. that's what it is it, it smacks to me of we've moved to a place where we're trying to avoid getting sued yeah. rather than thinking about what's right for the member and as, as I say it doesn't 
if you think about the whole thing holistically, it's not just about money, it's about the worry and the stress that we yeah. impose on people because they don't know what to do with it. They, they're worried mm. they've got to make these big decisions and what if they get it wrong? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's not good for people either. So yeah. we've lost sight of that, I think. And sometimes, yeah, I, I think that, that getting it wrong or worry about getting it wrong can lead to a hiatus in decision making as well. So yeah. say someone's looking to take out a piece of insurance and they don't get round to it because it's just too much for them to get their heads yes. around. Yeah. Yes. And, and actually, is it better for them to take out a probably not absolutely optimal insurance policy, but take the one out that broadly meets their needs versus not having insurance at all? Yeah. So, you know, what is the phrase? Uh, don't let the best be the enemy of the good? Satisficing. Satisficing. So there's two decision frameworks. And one is to, to optimise, so mm. to maximise. Uh, and one is to satisfy. So if you go into like a say mobile phone shop, so the maximizer, the optimizer, would essentially have to evaluate all of the fifteen hundred mobile phones. Uh, possibly, if they were smart, they'd have some sort of criteria to come in with, and all the contracts uh, as well, and all the contracts, so right? Yeah. All yeah. of that complexity so you'd probably have has to be considered. And the DWP had in well, their value for money because if you're an optimizer and there's a you know you walk out of the shop and the next day a new phone or a new contract comes out, you are almost instantly dissatisfied. Hmm. Uh, if you're a satisficer, then you work out what's good enough, and the first mobile phone you find which is good enough against your preset criteria, you buy. Mm. Right? And it's about finding your which, where do you want to be a maximizer and where do you want to be a satisficer. Uh, and I fear um, that we, essentially the framework of consumer brands and pensions is slipping into being a consumer brand, essentially says your job as my consumer is to maximize your satisfaction from this brand. And actually your job is to maximise your satisfaction from life overall. And it could well be you don't want to spend time worrying about stuff. Mm. I'll give you a little anecdote. Right, you know I replaced my mobile phone. So I, I, I broke my mobile phone in a building accident at home. And um, I went down to the shop, bought the cheapest, exact the same mobile phone. And I said to Darren, oh, I bought the, it's the Samsung A13 something. Yeah. And he went, oh, you should have talked to me. <laughs> and I think it's because you would probably want to optimise, maximise mobile phones. Yeah. And I just satisfied it. Yeah. I just bought, I just was back online, back on, the, you know, people yeah. could call me within a couple of hours. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. knowing where you are in each of those disciplines. Yeah. Um, uh, I think is a really, really important life yeah. lesson. And not beating yourself up about it. Yeah. You know, when the, you've got the person tapped in the show, God, you didn't go for that one. You yeah. could have got a much cheaper contract. <laughs> it just made me laugh. The... <laughs> well, you said you should have called me, and I was like, you've missed the, the <laughs> central part of the story. But do you know, do, 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 do you know what? It's, it, it's, it's, the, it's the phone a friend thing, mm, isn't it? Mm. That's what we want to do. That's mm. why Who Wants to Be a Millionaire is so popular. We don't want to have the knowledge in our head. We want to have one of those lifelines and make it easy for us. Mm. So the decision process should be as stress-free as we possibly can yeah. all we do at the moment is we blind people with science mm. and make it very difficult for them but that, but that I think that legal risk comes from the maximizing yeah so that kind of uh, I've got and, a league and, chart and thinking yeah legal I, I've, thinking. I've got a league chart and essentially there is a yeah. sort of mindset which says that the only acceptable outcome is to be number one on that league uh, and it forgets that everything in the top two thirds, three quarters is absolutely fine. Well, I'm just hoping for Champions League now, Nicky. Oh well, that's uh, we, we try not to talk about the Arsenal. <laughs> um, uh, I think it's nailed on, isn't it? Anyway, no, it should be nailed um, on Champions League. But famous last words. <laughs> so uh, maybe draw the, the 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 lines for us between kind of purpose and values. 
Yeah. Um, because obviously we talk about value for money, which is everything has a financial metric. But that values piece, I think, comes out of your... Yeah, your yeah and I was just well. thinking with what you said, that it's kind of the difference between um, the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. Right. And we've gone, we're in a world... Where, and actually, that's one of the things I like about consumer duty is... Actually, that makes it sound like there's loads of things I like about consumer duty. But the, the, like. <laughs> I like, the thing I like about consumer duty is it, it, it sort of moves... It, it's non-prescriptive in a way. It's saying, right. we want the best outcome, but it's up to you to work out what that is. Yeah. yeah. And because the trouble is, and I said the trouble is, we're all we're all clever chimps. You give yeah. us a, a you give us a problem to solve, or a, a set of rules, we will find the loophole because that's yeah. what we do. And yeah. as soon as you have rules that are black and white, that 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 it, that enables us to be creative and find yeah. and find scope to find mm. ways around it. Tax job and accountancies and. All. All of that type of stuff, isn't it? That's what those is cat yeah. and mouse between HMRC and all the big consultants. Yeah. Companies, you know. Yeah. And yeah. what a waste of time and energy and bureaucracy, yeah. actually. Yeah. It, and it is all about it. it, it we just dra- we just drown yeah. ourselves in bureaucracy. But, but also like vested interests and alignment, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah. I look at the consumer duty as basically. So I, somebody asked me uh, why it doesn't apply to trusts, and I said because trusts have a fiduciary duty. Yeah. And insurance companies have only got a fiduciary duty to their shareholders. Yep. And so if you, you know, want to go into the poaching environment and pretend to be a gamekeeper, you need something like consumer duty. But the trust law is essentially the gamekeeper environment. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that you're competent, right? No. No. <laughs> but uh, the competence that an insurance company has to build is maximising shareholder profit, right? Um, and that is not the same as looking after customers. So you get all of these regulations treating customers fairly, consumer duty, which are essentially, you know, yeah, of course you have to look after uh, shareholders, but there may be other stakeholders that you should be thinking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the thing I like about consumer duty is that it, it, I think it's aiming to embed a new approach within companies. So it's not just a tick box regulatory compliance thing. It's so you've got to have the evidence, you've got to continue testing, you've got to keep refining yeah. what you're doing to make sure that it is, is still good. So, you know, one of the big problems our industry has is legacy products. Right. You know, products that are no longer sold, yeah. but, you know, millions of people mm. in them. And, you know, they get shunted around between different administration platforms and bought out as part of this deal and that deal. Yeah. And, you know, you've got a huge legacy mess there mm-hmm. um, that is going to take years and years to unpick. Yeah. Now, so hopefully with the consumer duty, that probably shouldn't happen. Yeah. 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 Because it'll be interesting to see how it pans out, actually. Yeah. And I think, Nico, to your point, that's, that's kind of where the values, the value and yeah. the values things yeah. tie in, that we should be focusing in DC schemes and in our workplaces on what are the delivering the right outcomes mm. and i think with a with a workplace the right outcome is that the business gets what it wants in terms of a profitable bottom line with happy people yeah and yeah. that 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 actually if we focus on if we if we focus on what comes out of the sausage machine rather than what goes into the sausage machine, then 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 you're, we're sort of missing the point because out of, out of the the, 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 the company sausage machine might come the best widgets or right. the yeah. or yeah. the 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 value statement of let's have the happiest clients. Mm. But if we turn that on the head on its head and we say let's have make sure that we've got the happiest people, we've got the most motivated people who really love coming to work, then you get. 
out of the sausage meat, you get the best widgets and you yeah. get the happiest yeah. clients because people really love their job. Yeah. And and that's what I'd love to see us pivoting. And it ends up with a much, much more sustainable workforce, a much happier workforce. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's aligned, I do mm. believe it's aligned with, with bottom line success. Yeah. So it's not just some hippy dippy yeah. um, 1970s so, so, throwback. So removing idea. that stress <laughs> of not being able to retire <laughs> yeah. must be a really important part of that employee value proposition. Yeah, right? yeah. Like yeah. They, exactly, exactly, it. definitely. And, it, and it's about focusing on um, the on, on kind of delivering delivering the right environment. Yeah. So the right environment for people to to arrive at the right investment decisions with minimum stress and hassle and the right environment for people to to work in in the office I think yeah, so that I think yeah. there is a kind of strong parallel do you, do you think a lot of companies are guilty of let's call it workplace washing yeah so you have um, you know because because any business leader sort of understands that they need to have a good employee advocacy program yeah. or, or whatever yeah. it actually is yeah. but there can be a real disconnect between okay yeah we provide this we provide that we've got this form we've got that form this is what we believe right yeah. uh, versus actually how people behave and yeah you know, I think it's completely true I think there's a lot there, a big example of this actually and one that I, I quiz people on when I interview them is is a lot of places have got mental health first aiders mm. right and on the face of that's a brilliant idea, and yeah. and I'm sure there are some companies there where it is used, but a lot of the companies I spoke to, they have it, but no one yeah. uses it. Yeah. And why if you why why would you if you were if you were going through distress yeah. and yeah. crisis, yeah. Yeah. how many of us genuinely feel safe enough to go and tell someone at work or to yeah. tell someone who's like a a mental health first aider? Or you, you know, you're worried about the the. the your employment record yeah. I think still there's yeah. a lot of yeah. stigma attached yeah. to it so it's, it looks good on the tin mm. but actually and, and it's the sort of thing that when market talking from a financial services point of view here when markets are rising well actually more generally as well when you know when stock markets are rising we're you know we're all happy to have the the person whose job it is to make is to make sure everybody's having a nice time at work yeah. 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 but you know as soon as 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 cost pressures hit they're going to be the first against the wall right it, yeah. it's the yeah. Yeah. because because they're expendable Short yeah. term, it's expendable. Yeah. yeah. So there's a couple of tools in the book um, to try and work out the right sort of balance between working from home and working yeah. in the office. Um, I, I wondered, so the work wheel, I, I thought it was a really interesting idea. Yeah, the work wheel. I, I, I'm, really, I'm really interested in the idea of the work wheel. So the idea is that I'm going to draw a, draw a visual picture for you. So I'm actually <laughs> holding up my, my pen at the moment so, so Darren and Nick I can see it. But if you, if you think about the different aspects of your job that you that you that you what is your what does your job create so you consist of so it might be things like doing detailed quiet deep work like report writing mm-hmm. or it might be team meetings or it might be mentoring or it might be innovation or client meetings or doing international calls or yes. all the all those kind of things so you, you 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 think of them and then each of them you think of it being a spoke on a wheel yeah. And one way you and can use this. And benefit, Jenny is moving the pen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We're seeing this Exactly, there we go. And then you've got, if you imagine like a scale from, I don't know, whatever, naught to 10, where 10's on the outer, outer mm-hmm. perimeter of the wheel and naught's yeah. in the centre. And you think about, if I'm working 100% from home, mm-hmm. where am I on each of those things? Which are where, the, where 10 is most effective and least effective? And you, yeah. you can plot it, you know, the, and then join the dots and you end up with like a spider's web. Yeah. And then you do the same thing when you're working in the office. And, and often they're complementary. So, for mm. example, brainstorming is generally best done in person. Yep. So probably be quite close to the centre of the wheel 
if you're if you're at home but quite close to the end if you're in the office whereas deep work is often better done in a quiet space at home yeah so clearly you can see there's sort of a complementarity it doesn't take a you know, it doesn't take a huge leap of imagination to think, oh, yeah. yes, well, actually, if I can do a bit of both, mm. then yeah. then that's the right thing. So that's a, 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 but it's really interesting to take that and think, actually, which are the ones that are genuinely important for me in my team, in my environment for the next year or to achieve the business goals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if it turns out that, that, that you know, there are four of them and actually they're best done at home, why on earth are you asking people to come into the office? Yes. Yeah. At least, it, and it provides a framework that allows you logically to put aside your biases and come up with a rational framework. Because part of the thing is, and I alluded it to the, at the start, I think, is this understanding your why. Yeah. And employers are asking people to come back like JP Morgan for good reasons. It's not good reasons. Employees often are reluctant to come back mm. for some good reasons, like you know they've they've organised, they've got the work life balance, they've got the flexibility. You don't have to pay for childcare. When you've got a twelve-year-old who's coming home from school, because yeah. you, you've just got somebody in the house, you doesn't yeah. you can still do your work, but there's somebody in. Or because you, you, why commute? You know, you're wasting time commuting. But there's also bad reasons. And, yeah. You know, you get very blinkered. You forget that you're part of a team. And another yeah. thing I talk yeah. about yeah. is yeah. the office is an organism. Yeah. It's not just about you. Mm. You may be more personally effective at home, but when you're in the office, you actually increase other people's effectiveness. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so you lose that, you become very silent and you lose the office as an organism kind of a thing. Yeah. But but I think one of the things that people, talking as an individual rather mm-hmm. than employer, is being told what to do for no good reason, apparently. And people have yeah. said, I don't want to come in to pander to the extroverts or just because people yeah. are saying I have to come in. But the work wheel allows the employer to logically come up with a plan that's right for the business mm. in a way which puts their own prejudices aside because it makes them examine it logically and then they've they've got a really interesting tool to explain to their workforce what the value is and when you come in again we talked about this before there's another another fantastic idea called distributed working which is not not my idea I wish it was it's not my (laughs) idea It's, it's, it's just this idea of thinking about which tasks can be done synchronously which 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 tasks can be done asynchronously mm. and which tasks do you need to be collated co-located for which ones yeah. can you be separated for yeah. and yeah. the base of the pyramid is there is stuff that which is which is not co-located and not um not not co-synchronous and the top of the pyramid is is like this the really valuable gold stuff yeah. gold yeah. dust stuff is expensive because mm. you're both in the same time in the same place yeah so why waste your time doing stuff which is lower mm. down the pyramid that you don't need to be in the same time yeah. in the same place for so when you be really thoughtful about when you come into the office don't do those zoom meetings yeah, yeah. you know yeah. come in and make sure that you're you'll you, you use your work wheel to work out which are the tasks that you should be doing be more mindful you had um you, you, you used one word um, earlier, which was plan. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that, that this stuff just isn't going to happen organically. Yeah, yeah, if you want people, if you're going to do the work wheel stuff, if you're going to, um, you know, analyse this stuff and think, okay, how can I optimise when people are in? Yeah. yeah. There's, there's some thought and there's effort that yeah. needs to go into that. Yeah. And also there's more. a contract within there as well. Yeah. That, yeah. you know, if the team has decided, and I don't, I've deliberately not said the manager, if the yeah. team has decided we are doing this on this day because we're all coming coming in and we yeah. want to be together to achieve this outcome, yeah. then A, you've got to plan that and make the most effective use of time and B, you've got to do it. Yeah. 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 And a number of times then, you know, it would be, you'd be looking to go in and then you just get the thing which is, oh yeah, sorry, something else has cropped up or we're yeah. not doing this today or, 
you know, and that is so demotivating and yeah. so demoralising. Yeah. yeah, it's like yeah. it's like when you I did some rowing at university and you get up at six o'clock in the morning. There's the one person who hasn't gone out of bed, so you can't you know you can't go out. I used to live so, next door to that so, guy. So, <laughs> very <laughs> annoying. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I think I think <laughs> planning intent being intentional about it is yeah. really important because what what we what we risk doing and you know there's some good things about this as well as it's like water when you've got a leak. Yeah. It kind of goes to the, it finds its own way. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. what we're doing at the moment with mm-hmm. allowing allowing people to do their hybrid thing. It's sort of, yeah. it's, it, well, it's been finding its own way, which is fine up to a point. But isn't it better if you lay the pipes? So yeah. at least you broadly know you don't want it over there, you want it over there. You don't want it to yeah. flood your living room, you want it to flood your kitchen. Yeah. You know, then you can actually be more, you can plan it rather than letting yeah. it happen to you. Take yeah. control of it. And then you've got the, uh, the extreme going back to JP Morgan again. You've got them saying you need to be in for ding, ding and dong, which is which may be fine as long as ding, ding yeah. and dong are good reasons to be in for. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. you'll end up annoying people and ultimately people will, the people who can vote with their feet, will vote with their feet. Yeah. And then you'll end up with a very uniform type of person in an organisation, the ones who don't care about flexibility yes. and are quite happy to. And and if we think that um, ED&I is a good thing, surely that's a bad thing then. Right. If, yeah, if yeah, you end up with one type of person. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think we could probably talk to you about your work for <laughs> hours and hours and hours, uh, but uh, we should probably call it, call it there. Um, so that's, we've been talking about your book, uh, On Motivation, Purpose and Hybrid Working available on Amazon Correct. Um, and uh, as is your first book and uh, yeah I've really enjoyed it and um, uh, and enjoyed speaking to you as well um, I've learned a few things it's really interesting I was thinking there's um, probably I need to uh, order a few copies of your first book and send it to a few people <laughs> yes. as, a, as, a, as a Christmas present and I think I, I haven't looked through I haven't leafed through the first book but uh, your photographs uh, uh, all the way through this one. So yes. you, you, you take photographs as well. I take photographs, yes, and it's and my 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 my, my company's is speaking with images. Yeah, and that's yeah, not yeah, just yeah. that's you know that's that's verbal imagery, but mm. it's also visual imagery yeah. as well, power of the picture, and lots of film quotes as well. And, he, and yeah. Douglas Adams makes the odd appearance. <laughs> well, well, I certainly learned something today. <laughs> <laughs> so what we've we got coming up, Nico? We've got um, uh, DG Publishing DC Strategic Summit, which we've mentioned before, on the fifteenth of May. Um, but we're not at the DG Publishing Pod today, no, are we? No, no, no. So today uh, we're at the World Gold Council's office uh, here on Fetter Lane. I mean, you know, a, a stone's throw from DG oh, it's not Publishing. Far, is it? It's not far. Um, so we're in the same neck of the woods. But thanks to the World Gold Council for hosting us. Um, a bit of a pod pod snafu. Yeah. So we're this is now a roomcast. Rather than a podcast. Um, and uh, Jenny, you know, you're speaking at the IFA conference uh, in June. Is that on that's on hybrid that's working? That's on purpose and, and hybrid working, yes. There's a lot of interest in it, which is I think is fantastic. And uh, so I'm also speaking for Bonnet Waddingham and I'm doing something called Best Employers in the Eastern okay. Region, which is which is great. And and also a big shout out to Hyman's because Hyman's Robertson because they've they're using my book at their book club, oh, which is amazing. Yeah. So I'm really because I want to change the world. Yeah, yeah, nothing, yeah. nothing, good. nothing short of uh, ambitious. Amen. But, uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So um, next week we have Joe Cumbo, um, uh, who I'm sure you all know as the FT journalist on pensions extraordinaire. Um, and coming up, we also have Romy from Pensionsby and Brian Henderson from Mercer. Uh, many others. Um, we've got a few kind of soft confirms uh, to come. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's good to be. You know, we've had some great guests so far. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think we've had over two thousand six hundred downloads of the podcast now, which yeah. um, 
you yeah. know, from, 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 from the point of view of Turmish's, you know, doing this yeah, and yeah, trying yeah, to set yeah. this up, and I don't think it's that bad. Did you see the BBC News story, uh, which said uh, only one quarter of podcasts make it past 10 episodes? Really? So I thought, yeah, we're oh, in that. Oh, wow. Wow. The wow. That's, that's a mindset. Half of them only make it past, uh, don't even make it past three episodes, apparently. Yeah, so it shows we're very driven. Yeah, yeah, very driven. We just enjoy each other's company. Yeah, it's something like that, yeah. <laughs> um, so you'll find us on all good podcast platforms. So please follow us, please like, please uh, retweet and share and all of that good social media stuff. And don't forget, you can get in touch at vfmpensions at gmail.com. Um, you know, We've still got an outstanding question yes. um, about what the... Per- what still you think two responses. <laughs> three, because we, we, we were asked Robert on live, didn't oh, we? Oh, yes, we did, yeah. Um, so you know, it'd be good to know what the perfect length of a podcast is. And we put Robert on the spot last week. So, Jenny, yeah. what's, what's the perfect, perfect length like? of a podcast? What's the perfect... Length of a podcast? Uh, oh, uh, of our podcast. Of your podcast. Yeah. Well, Infinite. Oh, oh, very good. Oh, very good, very good. That's going to skew the distribution quite yeah. heavily. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's quite interesting that the actuaries are either end of the spectrum. <laughs> they, 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 they actuaries are the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, looking forward to um, speaking to Joe next week. Jenny, thank you so much. Yeah, really enlightening session. We, we could have talked for hours. And, um, yeah, like... Amazon is the place to go to to get yeah. both book one and book two and congratulations on publishing your second one this week. Thank yeah. you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you both. Thank you. So until next time, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>